that as we hopefully add to our knowledge of who you are today, it wouldn't just be a, another uh, catalog item and all the random facts that we know in our brain, but uh, that they would be tucked away in our hearts, stored up, treasured, like uh, Mary treasured the words of the angel, that we treasure these words up in our heart as well, and that they might serve us and cause us to grow in our love for you and our love for others. And so we pray for this time, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> well, we're picking up in Joshua chapter 6, and we're in one of those challenging and peculiar chapters of the Bible, uh, both because in it we saw the battle strategy last time we were together of uh, the beginning of the conquest of the promised land and how that completely kind of defies our expectations, certainly defies any kind of war strategy that you'd ever find in the halls of, of the Pentagon or, or any other military intelligence. But even beyond that, we do find some challenging issues, and what we'll talk about today are, are one of the most, uh, some call the most uh, greatest moral conundrums that we see presented in the scriptures, uh, things that stumble and have stumbled many believers in their faith and give fuel to so many skeptics who want to paint God as a moral monster. And uh, we're going to be talking today about this command of the Lord to destroy every person in the town of Jericho, men, women, even children, young and old, hawks and sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. What does that mean? Where do we go from there? How can we still be Christians despite such challenging words? So let me pick up in Joshua chapter 6, verse 15. And then uh, read it for you, and then we'll, we'll begin our discussion and our, our message today. On the seventh day, now we're just on the tail end of the battle strategy, of course. They've been walking around the uh, city of Jericho for six days. On the seventh day here, they're going to circle it seven times. So uh, that's the battle strategy for conquering the city. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for Yahweh has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to Yahweh. He shall go into the they shall go into the treasury of Yahweh. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Go on, uh, of course, to read that those who were spared was uh, Rahab and uh, her family, but everything in the city they did just as the Lord commanded, they burned everything down, they put all the people to the sword, only the silver, the gold, the vessels of bronze and iron uh, they took, and everyone else was wiped out. Now, one thing I want to reiterate is when we try to understand a, a passage like this, and there are numerous passages like this, speaking of the total destruction of the people, we need to take it at face value, that this is history, 
This is not allegory. This isn't mythology. This isn't, well, I'm glad that didn't really happen, and God is just trying to teach us a lesson here. I'm so glad God didn't actually command that every person, every living thing in the city was destroyed. No, it, it is very clear, and we're going to examine it um, further, that this is a, intended to be a historical event. Even if it wasn't a historical event, God definitely commanded these things. So even if you say that he just in a story commanded for the death of all the uh, living things in the city, you would still have the same kind of moral quandary. Uh, I want to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. In order to frame uh, what's happening here in Joshua 6, and we'll see it come up again a few other times in the book of Joshua, but Deuteronomy chapter 20 and these are the laws concerning warfare. First four verses, and then we're going to jump down to verse 10. But Deuteronomy chapter 20, the book just before Joshua, the Lord commands, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and sh say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For Yahweh your God is he who, gives, who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. In other words, there was an expectation that part of their journey as the Israelite people is that they would engage in warfare against other nations. And it's very clear that the way that they are going to gain the victory is not being the more powerful army, the stronger army, the more strategic army. They are only going to win by the power of God because God himself will be with them. And we're going to see that of course, it's conditioned then, are they going to actually trust in Yahweh, or are they going to try to win, uh, win the, the battle with their own devices, with their own strategies, with their own power? When they do that, they fail. But when they actually believe God, they will have the victory. But there is an expectation of warfare uh, laid out here in Deuteronomy. And, in, of course, in the ancient Near East, many millennia ago, warfare was a very common occurrence. Some of uh, what we need to do when we approach these passages is understand that we have had a very, very blessed period of human history living here in the Western world. And um, we don't have to regularly, let's say, in our classrooms and with our children, give them laws concerning warfare. You always learn, at least for me, I didn't learn battle strategy when I was in elementary school or high school. I learned about other battles. I learned about other wars of history, but it's not like I was ever taught battle strategy or anything like that. But if you were alive at this time, if you were a young man, if you're a boy, you would be prepared for battle. Not in the let's play cops and robbers or let's play soldier kind of thing, but legitimately expected to be uh, a soldier and a warrior and to have to fight for your people. Go down to Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. 
And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when Yahweh your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which Yahweh your God has given you. Thus shall you do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. In other words, the uh, the Canaanite people, the, the ites, okay, we'll see in just a second. But in the city of these peoples that Yahweh your God is giving you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, though you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as Yahweh your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against Yahweh your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes more with you until it falls. That's very interesting. It's basically... You're, this campaign in the promised land against, I'm going to call them the ites, and I don't want to make it sound too trivial, but uh, the Amorites and the Canaanites and so on, the ites, right? Um, they, there's a specific command God is giving because they are humans, because they are people, and uh, they're being warned at the end. It's almost like, you know, it's not that the Bible is saying be a tree hugger per se, uh, as we might put it now, but there's no reason to bring destruction to the, the land, you know, a scorched earth tactic, you might say, um, in waging war against people. You don't need to do that because, A, God is going to win the battle for you, um, but B, part of what God is doing in commanding this destruction is a judgment, and those trees don't deserve judgment, you could say, so he makes a distinction. So God is commanding that Jericho, along with all of the other ites in the promised land, to be completely destroyed, um, devoted to destruction. The Hebrew word harem, uh, which just means something set aside for God, um, and it means to be destroyed specifically. It's uh, kind of like uh, the word holy or sanctified is like set aside for God in kind of a good way. Harem is like set aside for God for destruction. So it's the, maybe the, the opposite of it. Now, how can we reconcile this with God being merciful and gracious? I mean, especially since I think uh, we're, um, we have this moral intuition that the children there, they haven't done anything wrong. So why would they also be the victims of this destruction? In fact, of course, the way some people reconcile it, even believers, is to say, um, that these passages are, again, maybe they're allegorical, maybe they're mythologized, maybe they're overstated, um, maybe it's exaggeration, but none of those really hold water. It's better just to take it at face value. But I have heard people tell me, and I, I don't know whether they're, they, uh, some of them profess to be Christian, but whether they are, that's between them and God, but say as much as, well, the Old Testament and the New Testament you know, the New Testament God is, is kind of different. Like God 
either changes his mind or is a different God almost, like Jesus is different than the Father somehow. Well, you probably see the immediate problem with that. A, God doesn't change. He's the same, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. God is, has no shadow of turning within him. Um, so, of course, that can't be an option. And uh, Jesus is God in the flesh. So there can't, you cannot say that Jesus is somehow different or has a different character, different nature or something than God the Father. So none of those hold up. Those are not options either. I'm sure you've heard your own objections or how people are stumbled by this this passage. But I want to simply communicate this. This subject is one I hope that you do a lot of reading about and research, because it does represent, I think, one of the greatest moral conundrums. I would agree with that sentiment. And so it is very rich with a lot of people, a lot of God-fearing people trying to reconcile it and uh, to, to grasp it. So I think it is something worth your attention. Am I going to get to, you know, a full, you know, am I going to explain this all for you by the end of this, this sermon? Everything is resolved for you? No. This hopefully represents a beginning of your thoughts. And I say that all the time. All of my sermons, I always hope they're the beginning of your thoughts on that passage, not the conclusion. Because that would suggest that I have the last say on it. And that's just certainly not the case. I always hope that in any sermon, it is the beginning of your thoughts on that passage or a continuation of your thoughts on that passage, not the conclusion. I have simply one goal today. And that is simply to um, ask you to take a humble attitude as you approach this question. Because if you approach this question as if you are the judge, as if you have the right to tell God anything, you're not going to come to really good conclusions on this. You have to come at this from a, a position of humility. And I'll say this, that is almost some of the point of these kinds of passages that are very hard maybe to grasp or seem much kind of bigger or even uh, go against our moral intuitions. It's it's exactly to put us in a position of humility. So the goal of the passages like this are to humble us. So I'm hoping that you would uh, address these things in a humble way as well. I'm going to start off with this. We need to remember that we really do have a completely different view of the world, at least in terms of how society functions, even war. And I said it already that we are very blessed for most of us, not all of us. Most of us have been very blessed to not truly um, have an experience of, of, of a world like at war in your backyard. Like even in World War II, people in your community died for sure. But it's not like the war was, was here except for Pearl Harbor. And frankly, Pearl Harbor was, is very far from here still. So the idea of like soldiers and things like here going through your backyard, that's very foreign to us. America especially has been very, very blessed in this uh, regard. This was a great quote. So there's going to be a quote and there's going to be a quote within this quote. They're both good. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, it, huh? You know, you don't have to write it. You can just listen. And if you want it, I can, you know, I can give you the quote. And uh, this comes from an article I found very helpful in regards to this subject. Um, actually, I think it was a, a dissertation by a man, uh, Matthew Schultz. Um, so this is a quote from Matthew Schultz, but within it, he's going to make another quote. And the point of this is simply to get us 
hopefully to humble ourselves even of our preconceptions of what we think or assuming that all of our moral intuitions are immediately correct. We just, to take a moment, whenever we read the scriptures, to whenever we hear something that kind of maybe says, wait, that doesn't sound right, to be able to say, okay, hold on, maybe I need to just take a little bit of a backseat and just, you know, read the scriptures for what it says, not try to preload anything. So here's what he says. And if we are tempted to fall back on the idea that our moral intuitions are universally binding or self-evidently true, it turns out that Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic people, with what are known as weird people in sociological parlance, the so Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, so I guess sociologists call them weird people. That's what it's spells, W-E-R-R-D. And most of us are are weird in that way. <laughs> it turns out that w- weird people are statistical outliers. And here's another a quote within the quote. They are the least typical, least representative people you could study if you want to make generalizations about human nature. Even within the West, Americans are more extreme outliers than Europeans. And within the United States, the educated upper middle class is most unusual of all. In other words, Irvine, upper middle class America, 21st century. What we think and experience is very, very statistically small compared to human history. I mean, can we at least admit that, you know, that we have had an experience of life, or most of us, I did grow up here my whole life, Southern California, that what I have experienced in my life up until now has been blessed, of course, but I, I... I would be basically fooling myself if I thought all of human history was like the 40 years of life that I've experienced in Southern California. Um, it, it, it is not how most of the world would view things. So I, I ought to be at least a little bit careful, knowing that a lot of my moral intuitions we absorb from our culture, even like a quasi-Christian culture, to just assume if I feel something's wrong, it must be wrong. We gotta at least have the humility to take a step back um, and say, okay, let me at least lay some of those, you know, hold them somewhat loosely as I compare them to Scripture, especially as we compare them to Scripture, let alone as we talk to other people and try to share ideas. It's, you know, if we're just dogmatic about um, that, that we must be right for whatever reason, there's not going to be perhaps a very good discussion or even growth. So, but especially as we come to Scripture, to have the humility to say, maybe I'm not always feeling the moral intuitions correctly. Now, what's going to happen next? I'm going to speak really in terms of plain statements about what Scripture says. Some of that is going to sound perhaps unemotional. And I I actually don't want it to be overly unemotional because uh, the Bible does not want us to not feel truth. When we read Scripture to just like a logical calculator, come up to theologically correct conclusions. It is oftentimes appealing to us, but they might sound or come off as a, not unemotional, but just like laying down facts. Um, and I, I do that so that we can take them all in without being too set off if we hear one fact that we get so, like, worked up about it, we don't hear everything else. Does that make sense? So just 
you know, be willing to hear some of the things in the passage that we say here um, without getting too worked up so that you can hear all the scriptures. Um, it's like when you talk about predestination or any other kind of controversial subject, sometimes you hear one verse or one statement and you're just already riled up because you hold the opposite opinion and you don't hear anything else the other guy has to say. So don't do that. <laughs> we want to embrace all the scriptures say so that really we can find the right thing to think at the right time. Because there are times when the scriptures seem to give almost seemingly contradictory statements about God and his nature, and oftentimes it's because while we exist in time, we in a way have to apply the right thought at the right time, emphasize the right aspect of God's character at the appropriate times. That's how we have to deal with life. All right, the first way I want to view this issue is as the conquest, the Canaanite conquest, or the conquest of the promised land as a picture of the Christian life. Now, this is different than looking at it as an allegory, because in an allegory, it doesn't actually have to have happened. Yes, this did happen. But as with many things in the Old Testament, there are symbols of eternal things in these temporal things. What was God's purpose, after all, in bringing them to the promised land to begin with, the Israelite people? Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 is Moses' calling. And of course, at this point, for over 400 years, the Israelite people have been slaves of Egypt. And Yahweh has heard the cries of his people, and he reiterates this promise to them. We can begin in verse 6. Exodus 3, 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen, also seen the oppression, oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. God had already made a promise, as we know, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and here the people of Israel have, are far from that promise. What does the promised land represent. It's, it's a blessed land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's intended to communicate a dwelling place where God has made a home for them, specifically where there is prosperity, where there is blessing. Well, that, of course, is a symbol in a way of heaven that, that God is uh, saying to the Israelite people, I have prepared a home for you that is full of blessing and not cursing, that is free where now you are enslaved. He's also making a promise about the people. You are under oppression. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to free you from the hand of the Egyptians. I'm going to make you a, 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 a people unto myself. And what does that oppression and slavery represent? Well, 
course, it represents sin. They are enslaved to an, a wicked Pharaoh, and we see the language in, uh, in Romans 6 of our slavery to sin. The idea of slavery is always talking about, and oppression is always referring to, not well, almost always, our suffering under sin. So God is intending to take them from, the, uh, from a land of slavery, from the land of sin, you could say, to a land of peace and blessing and comfort, the promised land. And God intends for there to be a, a journey. He mentions here, of course, the, the Perizzites and the Amorites and the Hittites, the Ites. And uh, he tells them in verse uh, 17 of chapter 3, And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land <clears throat> of the Canaanites, Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. In other words, the purpose of all of this is for them to worship God truthfully and also he says here, I'm sorry, I skipped, um, I skipped a, a verse. I was going to do two more verses. So, But now I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I'll do in it. After that, he will let you go. So God's intention is to make a testimony of the Egyptians and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Hivites of demonstrating his holiness and his judgment against sin. He intends to communicate his glory in conquering these wicked nations and these wicked peoples. In, in other words, God is saying that, um, again, by way of a picture, that the, the enemy, that, that those who would oppose God need to be crushed. And if you read the issue with these people is not only that they are, we'll get to it in a minute, not only are they sinful people, but they draw you into sin as well. So they, they represent the temptations to sin. They represent our sin, uh, the sin of the Israelites. So when you look at it, and, you know, again, this is history, but also there's a picture being painted. God intends to crush, eliminate, overcome sin and temptation in our lives. The Canaanite people are the literal enemies of Israel. They need to be overcome on their journey to the promised land, but in, in a way that also represents that uh, God's intent for us as Christians to be sanctified, is to conquer and overcome every vestige of evil and of sin. And so when we see this uh, idea of the total eradication or decimation of these people groups, in a way, there's a picture there of, of us needing to eliminate, eradicate every evidence of sin. In other words, there is a picture of the Israelites going to the promised land that is a miniature picture of our sojourn in life. Um, as we go to, head to the promised land, you can imagine it a little bit like um, Pilgrim's Progress. Now, is this the actual intent? To make a little picture, am I just making that up, that this is sort of an allegory? Well, well, no. If you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and we've studied this before, Hebrews 11, we'll just do 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, 
These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And all throughout, you have this idea, this comparison of, of the, the heavenly city. But the way that people show they're eager to go to the heavenly city is by, by faith doing all these acts on earth, uh, and uh, specifically in going to the promised land. Uh, when we talk about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So yes, God did intend for there to be a certain picture in the Israelite journey, a picture in which we see the total eradication of the ites as a picture of the complete overcoming of sin. And make no mistake, these ites were all worthy of destruction. Deuteronomy chapter 9 Verse 4 through 5 says, these are not just folks who, you know, when they're really hungry, they stole a loaf of bread from the store. Uh, These are not folks telling a a little white lie in order to preserve the life of their children. These were evil and wicked men and women who did things like this. Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5. Do not say in your heart, After Yahweh your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has uh, brought, uh, brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word that Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We see also that in uh, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 14, the specific sorts of things that they did. Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 10. There shall not, uh, we'll start in verse 9 actually. When you come into the land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not, so what did they do? There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh. And before, because of these abominations, Yahweh your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before Yahweh your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you... Yahweh, your God, has not allowed you to do this. So what are the, some of the things that they did? Were they just uh, stealing you know, money from grandma and grandpa? No, they were sacrificing their children in the fire in order to appease their pagan gods. God is saying that these folks, they're not being driven out because you Israelites are morally superior It's not. It's not because of your righteousness, Deuteronomy 9 makes clear. But it's because they, they have committed such evil acts 
and God's patience has run out on them, they are going to receive judgment by your hand. In a way, you could think of the, the Israelite people as like a sword in God's hand with which he's executing judgment. Yes, Bill. Yeah. So it is a fulfillment, yeah, of, of, of a promise. Now, what does that mean for us? We, we must look at the events of Jericho and even the events throughout Israel's history with our eyes wide open to the horrors of death, the violence, and everything else and understand that the reason for it is sin. Sin is horrific and ugly and brutal. When you see an animal, this innocent little animal, spilling out its blood, it's a gruesome sight. I don't know that anyone should ever be accustomed to it because the, the injustice of it, the brutality of it, is to remind you of how you should be the one suffering like that because it is for your sin that these animals were bleeding and dying, though they were innocent and blameless. When we see these kinds of horrific judgments upon the enemies of God, when you read of women and children being killed, the seriousness of sin to God should not be underestimated. And the Israelites who were commanded to carry out this decree of destruction, they were supposed to understand with humility that such was God's justice. There, there should have not been any, let's say, hatred in their heart as they would commit these things. They were um, not to be impassive, feeling nothing. That's what serial killers do, right? They feel nothing when they shed blood. But rather, they were supposed to turn their hearts and eyes towards God, saying, this is what ought to happen to all who would go against the holiness and justice of the one God who made everything. And in fact, what this does, it makes the fact that Israel would sin in the same ways, including passing their children through the fire, all the more startling, because they, by their own hand, meted out the justice of God against those who did such things. So again, with some humility, we have to look at the, the picture being painted here, and what is the the point of it, are we supposed to be gleeful? Well, we know that the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. Actually, I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself here. But no, their attitude also is not to be, I feel nothing here. Killing a, a kid is like killing a, you know, um, a fly. No. But again, it's a little bit hard because we're not surrounded by death. We don't even have to kill an animal in order to get our chicken or our beef or our pork or whatever. So to us, we, just, we do have a strong aversion to that imagery of killing and death. But we all, in a way, we need to translate that into our feelings about sin. That, take, that does take a lot of work. I mean, because we don't really have that as a, as a moral intuition. It's not part of how we, we grew up, let's say. But we are supposed to look at these, all these passages we just read are very clear that when they did this, including, you know, committing uh, the, the children and the women to the sword, it is meant to be a, 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 an act of, yes, obedience, but also of, like, moral, um, uh, stir up in them a moral quandary in their own heart and a sense of humility 
that this is what the law of God requires. There's not, not to have been an ounce of, of anger or, or wrath in it, I don't think, in themselves. Because again, you know, Deuteronomy 9, very clear, it's not because of your righteousness. How, you should not come to them with a sense of you are morally superior to them. That's not the issue. It's God has determined them to be unrighteous and worthy of judgment. So he forestalls that. You know, we can talk about genocide and definitions of that. I, I, for the sake of the sermon, I didn't want to necessarily bring that up. But, you know, genocide often has to do with um, because they, there's a superiority of one nation against another simply for culture, simply for, you know, you, you are saying that you are either morally better or that your people group is more. There's none of that. And the only reason those ites died is because God himself in his perfect moral standard, and in his own patience and timing, said, this has gone on long enough. Now is the time for judgment. We have to have a little sense of humility and try to understand, let's say, this picture that's been painted very graphically and vividly in front of us in the death and the destruction that we see at Jericho and other places. Next, the, the second kind of approach to this uh, we'll call it, I'm going to call it the quote-unquote logical um, approach. And what I mean by this is really the theological approach. What are some of the biblical truths that must govern our approach to this question? First one is this. God has the right. God has the right over every life. God has the right over life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39 some of the very last words of Deuteronomy, and that's, again, given by Moses to this very people that are about to go into the land. This is on the cusp of entering the promised land. Moses says, See now that I, even I am he, and there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there's none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. And I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy." Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. God has the right over everything. We could phrase this as he's sovereign over everything. We could say that uh, with, as the creator, he can do you know, as he pleases. He is constrained by his the only thing God is constrained by is himself, his character, his nature. To be very pl- blunt, then, let's say it like this. Every person dies. Every person dies. How and when we die is up to God. Now, we don't like thinking about it. We don't like talking about it. And again, in our kind of Western, civilized, sanitized life, where we've been blessed by comfort and relative peace, where we don't have to kill in order to bring uh, meat to the table, thinking about death in those kinds of blunt terms, that God, it's his right to kill, it's his right to make alive, 
We don't ever have to really embrace that except when someone close to us gets sick or ill. And, and even, even then, it's, it's not typically in a, like, you know, I'll say this. All death is tragic, right? All, all death is tragic uh, in a sense because we, we don't necessarily want people to die. But it's, it, it's rare that the kind of death that we see is not still in a very, like, sanitized way. Like, most people that you know that are facing death you know, they're in a hospital or they're in some place relatively clean. It's not exactly a brutal circumstance. And thank the Lord for that. But it does make us a little bit disengaged when we hear this kind of like, I will make my arrows drunk with blood, my sword shall devour flesh, the blood of the slain, the captives. I mean, that's very vivid imagery. And, and I think you can't not but help. Maybe, maybe, actually, maybe you can't help it. But even as a Christian, even as believing fully, Yahweh has the right, I read this and I think, this is a little much, <laughs> you know, God's kind of, you know, it's probably kind of gruesome. I don't want to imagine God like bloodthirsty. Isn't that uh, another God? Isn't that uh, the God of uh, Islam or, or some other pagan nation? It just, to me, it just pushes again. And that's again where we have to say, like, I might not be thinking of this right. You know, I am, might be wrong here to even feel that kind of, like, intuition about this is like too much, God. I'm very uncomfortable with this kind of imagery that almost seems like you're, you're, you're bathing in blood. But then Jesus, this very consistent imagery, what happens in the book of Revelation, you know? Jesus comes down on his white sword, or his white sword, his white horse. Sword comes out of his mouth and just mows down so many people. And the blood is up to his thighs. And it's a bloody, gruesome picture as well. So we cannot again make the claim that, oh, Old Testament, New Testament, different gods, anything like that. Instead, we, we kind of have to, in our hearts, start to realize maybe even the imagery actually uh, Pesker is talking about this morning about maybe our, our, our sense, our taste of, of who God is needs to be a little bit cultivated to see things and think of things God's way, even as it regards violence, even as it regards something like the, the Canaanite conquest. Now, of course, these are not necessarily the super most comforting words for a parent of a dying child. You know, you know, God has a right over life and, and death and uh, all these things, and he, he's the one who kills, he's the one who, who wounds, and he's the one who heals, and all these things. Maybe that's not quite the passage you go to when someone is there with a dying child, but somewhere in our humble understanding of God needs to be an admission that Every person dies. Every person dies, and that is up to God. People who died in an accident, guess what? Even if they didn't die in that accident, were they going to die someday? Yes. War, famine, cancer. Tragedy is a function of our expectations and a little bit of our social condition, uh, conditioning. We do consider children dying as tragic because we think they never had a chance to live. They didn't have a chance to experience the things of life. But, you know, when you start thinking, well, what if they were going to have a really miserable life? Can you at least almost be thankful that they didn't have to live some life of misery either? But we feel almost guilty or bad about that. Those are things we can, we can contemplate. And when you really trust and believe that God has a right over life and death to maybe even be able to uh, to, to sense that, that perhaps a child who, who died young was spared some of the horrors of this life. 
But again, those might not be the words that you say to someone who's directly grieving the loss of a child, but somewhere again in our, in our hearts, those truths should humble us that God has certainly, or God is, life all ultimately belongs to him. And it, it is his call. And that he has a purpose for every long life and every short life. S- secondly, in our kind of logical, theological uh, understanding of the Canaanite conquest, we need to know, trust, believe that God is a judge who brings about judgment against sin. <laughs> God is a judge who brings judgment against sin. And sometimes it is very clear in this life, but certainly in the next as well. But God is the one who judges. God is the one who brings judgment. God can do that in any way, shape, or form that he chooses. This is God's prerogative to judge in this way. You see, it wasn't, it's very clear that it wasn't the Israelites' prerogative to make the judgment of who needed to be wiped out and who doesn't, right? Who made that list of the ites? Was that the Israelites? And they could tick off, well, these are my enemies and blah, blah, blah. No, God chose because God is the one judging, in a sense, making the judgment of who to judge. It's not the Israelites who are making the judgment of who to judge, but God himself. They didn't get to choose. Oh, you know, there's also these other guys. I just don't like the look of them. So can we add them to the list? No, this is the list. Oh, but what about these people? They're also as bad. No, God says this is the list. So we have to be very clear. That's another reason why this is not something like genocide. They're not targeted for their race. They're not targeted for anything except that their sin has met with God's justice. And in his timing, God said, this is the time to bring the judgment. And it's going to be through my people, Israel. And we see, just to address the issue, it's it's, uh, very briefly like, Many passages of scripture, we won't go to them now just for sake of time, but the Israelites are commanded to treat the sojourner and the alien with hospitality and respect. We saw in Deuteronomy before about how you offer terms of peace to the cities that were not the ites, you offer terms of peace for them first. So it's not as if you, they're just a bloodthirsty, uh, territory-hungry group of ravaging you know, tribesmen trying to expand their kingdom. This judgment against the Canaanites is a very much a God-ordained act, not something that the Israelites themselves are free to kind of choose and bring about judgment on their own, uh, on their own morality, on their own sense. And let, let's, again, admit that God has this right to do that. God has this right to do that over every life. Young, old, man, woman. He has the right to judge. He will judge. We have to realize also the fact that we are alive for even one more day as sinners, that we aren't immediately cast into eternal judgment at the first sin is an evidence that God is extraordinarily patient and merciful, that he allowed the ites to dwell in that land as long as they did, despite being such... Um, wicked, evil people burning again their sons and daughters, offering them up to their gods as a burnt offering. He let that happen for, for a long time. What we should be saying is, why didn't you stop them earlier? 
why didn't you send them earlier? You're worried about, oh, this is unfair or unjust that you wiped out all the, you know, the ites, but, you know, why not say, why didn't he stop them sooner? And that's kind of the, the question that we have to ask whenever we see these kinds of, of things. We have to realize that God has been patient with them for quite a while before he led up to this kind of, of judgment. I think there is, uh, again, a fact that, or there does come a day when God's patience for unrepentant sinners runs out. That's totally up to God. See, the Israelites did not get to choose the time and the date and the place. That wasn't up to them. That was determined by God. That was something that only God could, could uh, have the right and authority to do. All they could be is act as the sword of Yahweh, you could say. Humbly, we need to believe that, yes, we are all by nature children of wrath and that all sinners deserve God's judgment, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And so God is the judge. God can be the judge. God must be the judge, and it's by his own timing and will, not our own. That's another the theological assumption we must make. Third, third, God can spare the righteous from judgment. There is, in every example of God's judgment, God's salvation. Of course, in Joshua 6, it's Rahab and her family. In fact, there's extra grace there because Rahab was really the one who exercised faith. But because she interceded for her own family, God, by his mercy, maybe they all repented, maybe it's just Rahab, but he spares all of Rahab's family it seems to indicate that any other Canaanites who would likewise repent, maybe they could have been saved as well. It's just that there was none. It says something about the stubbornness of the people of Jericho, that they, rather than opening their gates, they shut them up in fear of Yahweh and the Israelites. They chose to wage war by rejecting them. Could it have been some other way? Well, we can start talking about predestination and, and all, that, all that stuff again. But uh, we do, I, I think we legitimately want to be able to say, um, even if they're seemingly contradictory tracks, we'll get there in just a second, um, that, hey, if they had repented like Rahab did, would God have brought judgment upon them? I, 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 I don't think so. Second uh, Peter chapter 2. We have this uh, reminder as uh, Peter talks about the righteous living amongst the unrighteous, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, I'm going to skip down just for the sake of time. But he speaks there of how God preserved Noah in the midst of the flood, how God preserved Lot in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the, un the, the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Humbly, we need to trust that God saves the righteous, that no one in Jericho that fell by the sword, and again, this might seem kind of getting sort of callous or just like the cold hard theology here, but no one that died in Jericho received injustice, was unjustly punished, unjustly um, condemned. And I think you might be able to make an argument, frankly, that even the children who uh, were killed 
that by God's grace, actually, they were, they were welcomed into heaven. I believe the children uh, are, are saved. And so in a way, rather than for them to grow up, to become pagan unbelievers, God spared them that by simply bringing them to heaven. Now, I, I wouldn't want to be the guy that's got to hold the sword. But again, we, we, we have a different culture, different sense of what war meant uh, back then than it did now, that you could do that perhaps without feeling anger or hatred, whereas us, we almost immediately assumed that if you were to shoot at someone or kill someone, even on the battlefield, you must hate them. Well, there's a difference in the Bible between killing and between murdering. Murdering has to do with motive and desire. You can kill someone without hating them. Um, that's why I think Christians can be, be soldiers, if, but there are those who think immediately by their, you know, Western, uh, you know, uh, thinking that any kind of killing of death of one person to another, that's got to be murder. And so they call every soldier a murder, every policeman's a murder, all, they're all murder. Well, that's not the way the, the Bible views that. Anyway, um, God can spare the righteous and God knows how, and God has even chosen, again, somehow, in that kind of a paradox, chosen who would be spared. He knows how to save them. Um, he has offered even repentance, like to Rahab. She heard about what the Israelites had done. She was in fear of Yahweh. We talked about that already. And so she said, I don't want to. I know you're coming, and you're going to wipe out the city for its wickedness, but please spare me, spare my family. And she was thus spared. So in our logical approach, we also have to include then that God is, lastly, fourthly, simultaneously, with all having said all that, simultaneously reluctant and long-suffering to sinners. Exodus chapter 33. Again, Exodus is talking about the fleeing from Egypt. It's talking about the enemies of God and what's going to happen. In Exodus 33, 11, Oh, that can't be right. <laughs> okay, that, that one is somewhere, something went wrong there. But uh, the passage, God does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. So if someone, can, <laughs> if someone wants to look for that and find it, you can, you can shout it out. But um, I must have uh, uh, messed up the the transcription there but it doesn't matter we also have second peter <laughs> chapter three just to prove that this is not a solely old testament idea but in second peter chapter three verse nine peter says the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance well again like god aren't you kind of in charge of of that too He's sovereign over everything? Yes, but you know what? He's also not willing, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Remember Nineveh, as we went through the book of Jonah, it just seems lock, stock, barrel. Judgment is coming to Nineveh. And yet, surprisingly, despite Jonah's best efforts, they repent and God relents. In other words, God, somehow we must say after having said all of those things, that it's not as if, God was gleeful in the walls of Jericho falling, in all of those people being killed by the sword. That somehow also must coexist with the theological truths that your wickedness is so evil, there's no other possibility than for you to be 
perish, uh, to, to perish and be killed by the sword, even the children. So there's humility there in having to accept and embrace all of those truths. It takes a humble heart. I think some people think if I was smart enough, I could understand all of these kind of you know, paradoxical statements about predestination and you know, how can God um, command the death of so many and people think that if I was just, you know, took enough seminary classes, if I, you know, read the Bible enough, I could line all these up. But really, if you want to understand these truths better, you need to be more humble, not more, you know, have, have a bigger brain. But I think in, in humility, um, we start to grasp these things better. Um, again, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed are for us and for our children. And it takes a humble heart to say, okay, I can't know everything then. God, I can only know what you've revealed. So fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge, not a great education, not an IQ of a 200. It's fear. And fear is another way of saying a humble sense before God in all his majesty. Now, I, I think just to, to kind of close it off, I think really the moral issue largely comes from God commanding the death of even the children. And, and that happens time and again. I think we can fathom that God might issue a decree of death upon sinful adults, but it's just hard to imagine God demanding the death of the children. That's hard. But it doesn't make God not God. I mean, think about it. Is God not God because a child dies in a cruel way or in some accident or, you know, a tornado or an earthquake or a fire? Like, in a way, those are more directly God acting. Like, here, at least, there's kind of a mediation, the Israelites. But do we say that God is not God just because, you know, my, my pastor friend, his child died of cancer? Or because a, a family was killed in a, in a tornado, like uh, Pastor Chris, uh, the church he was at before. Or, or that, um, I hate these stories, I, I, of parents that, are, that just do absolutely negligent things in, in killing their children. I, I don't, it makes my skin crawl even to read the headlines of them. I try not to do it, but they just come up because they, they get your clicks. But just parents, you know, leaving their children out to die. I, if this passage where God would command the children to be killed by the Israelites is, is hard to understand, those things ought to be hard to grasp and embrace too. And maybe they are. Maybe you do kind of see it all of the same uh, fabric that why does God let these horrible things happen to children and for them to die in uh, cruel ways? Well, I... That's uh, definitely another discussion, right? But I think if you are still believing that God is God, even though those kinds of evil things happen, then it's not too far. In a way, <laughs> in a way, maybe it's a little bit easier to understand how, uh, again, the, the children of these pagans were subject to the judgment of God, and again, maybe perhaps spared the, the fate of their fathers and mothers because they didn't have a chance to grow up in their wickedness or to in their anger and hatred of the Israelites to grow up and, and try to uh, take vengeance uh, for themselves against the Israelites. Remember that these are the kind of people that sacrifice their children to the fire as an act of worship to other gods. 
And one thing that should also make us realize that this is not completely um, unjust as if, as if God is being inconsistent. God allowed the children of the Israelites to suffer the same consequences. When Israel began to do the very same things of passing their own children through the fire, God brought the Babylonians against them to dash their children in the streets and to wipe out the children, you could say, in much the same way. It's not as if God had a one standard for the Israelites and a different one for the, the otherites. God is absolutely holy and consistent and shows no partiality. And in the light of that, our response should be a humble fear. The Israelites had an opportunity in having this very vivid imagery of putting these men and and women and children to death, what sin really does to a people and what God thinks of sin that maybe we ought to put ourselves in that same situation. Sure, imagine it, where you are going through the city and, and having to run a sword through a child. I mean, that's very visceral. I frankly can't imagine doing it. It would take an act of God, truly, to, to make me do that. But the lesson, if you're willing to embrace it, at least part of it is, such is the brutality, the horror of sin. And what is even worse, what is even worse is that despite them having that experience of having to thrust a sword through a child for the sake of God's holy justice and judgment, they would fall into the same sin. That speaks to the absolute terror and horror. Like we should be absolutely fearful of the horrendousness of sin. Joshua chapter 23. These are the last words of the book. And we we tend to write these on on, uh, placards and things and hang up in our house. You're going to immediately kind of uh, 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 remember these words if you've been a Christian um, for very long. We're going to start in Joshua 23. Joshua 23, 11 through 13. He's warning them. He's about to die. He's warning them. This is after the conquest, after everything. He says, be very careful, therefore, to love Yahweh your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that Yahweh your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that Yahweh your God has given you. So they did not wipe out all the peoples. That's assumed in this passage. And now all Joshua can do now is warn them what will happen if they go back into the practices practices of these pagan nations, did they? Did they heed Joshua's warning? Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. 
And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Now, what is stunning about that, and I know the part that we got, you know, emblazoned on T-shirts and everything, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Do you understand that what Joshua is saying is, at, even at that very moment, they still had idols, even from back in the days of Egypt, that they carried all the way from there. Remember, all their parents died. They still have those idols. They, in fact, have, some of them at least, were serving the gods of the very land of the people that they had just wiped out, had just killed their children because they were a pagan and wicked nation. What did the people say? People answered, far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. For it is Yahweh our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And, and Yahweh drove out all, before us all the enemies, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve Yahweh, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve Yahweh. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen Yahweh to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, Yahweh our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Consider that <coughs> despite the fact that they had killed tons of ites and their children, they still defied God. That is the lesson. You will never have to pick up a sword and kill an ite. Praise God. You will never have to pick up a sword and for the sake of God, kill you know, someone of a different religion or, or someone that lives an immoral life, there is no sense at all in the New Testament that is part of our Christian duty and obligation. We don't need to worry whether God is going to command us to do these kinds of things ever again. But let us not look in the mirror of God's word and see how despicable, how insidious, how <clears throat> ensnaring how horrific sin is that they could have the vivid experience of slaughtering children because of God's holiness and justice and still have the audacity to go against him. Even as they are saying with their mouth, we will serve Yahweh, they have idols in their home. <laughs> Incredible. And Joshua, poor Joshua, I mean, you got to build up to this. Poor Joshua, you are not able to serve Yahweh. I mean, after all he's been through, he's basically saying, I feel alone. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a statement that says, I don't think you guys got it in you. I've seen what you guys have done. And the only thing I can guarantee is what I will do. 
I can't control all of you guys. And he makes him swear a covenant and, and so on. And just a witness, you guys are witnesses against yourself. You know, he's about to die. I'm not going to be around to hold you accountable. When you read the book of Judges, what do you see except a failure of the Israelite people to understand what happened? I mean, Judges is just a tragic book in so many ways, all part of God's plan. But let me just close with, I don't know that we fear God enough. I don't know that we are humble enough to hold in our hearts the severity of God's judgment, his anger and wrath towards sin, his absolute sovereignty, and his mercy and repentance and grace. God's mercy truly is small if our understanding of sin is small. So we have passages like this to just kind of, you know, you look at it and maybe you need to feel a little bit of trembling and shaking of your boots that God would command the death of all these children because of sin. Maybe instead of judging God, we need to humble ourselves at the thought of sin so that when we see how great sin is in our lives and in the world, we'll marvel that God and his grace and his mercy is greater, that he can overcome that kind of sin. But there is adequate and vivid illustration of the horrendousness of sin that should cause us to fear his judgment. We're better served to try and stretch our understanding of God's view of sin and the consequence and judgment of it than diminish, diminish it. We should look at these things and not be shy about talking about them and having discussions about them and trying to stretch each other than to diminish it as if we need to save God from his own actions. After all, this is the thought I had. I mean, does, you know, doesn't it make God the arbiter of everything? Like, isn't this a breach of checks and balances to say that the same person judging is the same person who is offended by the crime, is the same one who can exercise the, the punishment, you know, and acts the punishment, and also the same one that can show the mercy? Like, doesn't that seem like a total, you wouldn't, want a trial like that. Those are, those are very uh, corrupt governments where, you know, the judge, the jury, you know, the, the, the one who's been offended by the crime gets to also be the judge in the crime and the jury. Like, you'd say that's a, you don't want to live in a system like that, right? So can we possibly accuse God of, you know, hey, this seems like a, a breach of checks and balances that you are the, the all of it, the all in all of it. How can it be otherwise? God is God, <laughs> Of course it has to be that way. Who is going to intercede for God? Who is going to judge over God's judgment? Who is going to be the one to mete out punishment, eternal punishment? Should it be me? No, of course God has to be all of that. The one who is offended by the sin, the one who can forgive the sin, the one who must judge the sin, the one that must execute the punishment for sin, the one who can save a life, the one who can kill a life. God is all in all. And the more we encounter passages and wrestle with those passages, hopefully God does become a little bit bigger in our mind and, and we can understand and what it means to really fear and be humbled by that as well. I know, again, I'm not going to answer all the questions. Maybe as we approach it again, Joshua, I'll have a little bit different angle, but I uh, just, again, wanted to perhaps instill in us a little bit of that need for humility a need to see just the, the gargantuan nature of sin so that we might truly feel humbled 
um, by, by who God is. And maybe we do need to tremble in our boots a little bit. Um, but always, always, always remembering that God also saves and that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no greater and vivid demonstration of the horrendousness of sin than, than that for God himself to suffer and bleed and die for us. But in that same act, there was salvation that was brought to us, the salvation that forgives our sin. Let's not, let's not forget that the most cruel slaughtering of an innocent was Jesus Christ dying for us, and that should also cast a light on, on the death of all these really poor children. I think we are to have sympathy for them. But if we're going to have sympathy for them, let us also have an admiration, a sympathy, a, 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 a praising of God for also sending his son to die on a cross for us. Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray that in some way, hopefully big or small, that our, our thoughts on you would grow and that we would... I have a sense of the seriousness of sin, but also a sense of um, your salvation from the judgment of sin. And I pray, Lord, that, that we would take these things always to you, and that we would uh, want to get answers, good answers about these sorts of questions, knowing that you will reward those uh, who in fear seek you. You will give us knowledge, and you will give us wisdom. So thank you, Lord, for the opportunity again to look at your word. I pray you'd bless this time together as we fellowship around the table. May you be honored and glorified and praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you all. Please plan to stick around and enjoy uh, dinner.